Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Fred and King stand alone. Not alone. Go hit him! Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. Take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation as we continue our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. If you're using one of the Bibles provided this morning, you'll find it on page 495. As you're making your way there this morning, let me give you just a couple of announcements of what is going to be happening the next two or three weeks. We understand we got Christmas coming up and uh, New Year's and those things. So things are going to be a little different the next three weeks. I want to let you know what's going on. We'll actually, uh, today will be the last day we're in Revelation for a couple of weeks. We'll set that aside until the first of the year. Next Sunday is going to be a really exciting Sunday, as uh, Barry already mentioned. It's our Christmas Sunday. And so, no, we will not be talking about the tribulation on Christmas Sunday. We're going to set that aside, and we're going to talk about Christmas. It's going to be very encouraging, filled with hope and encouragement. So I really encourage you to invite your friends next Sunday for that special service, and they'll have a chance to hear what Christmas is really all about and receive the gift of salvation, the greatest gift we could ever receive at Christmas or any other time. So it'll be a very special service next week with that. The following Sunday, which is the day after Christmas on December 26th, um, not only is that a Sunday, but that's Shelly and I's uh, wedding anniversary. So you can bring all your gifts for us that day on the 26th. 18 years she's put up with me on the 26th of December. Uh, But I'll be here. We'll be having church that day. And if you're in town and you have family, we're going to have just one service at 9 o'clock. Bring everybody out. It's going to be laid back. We're going to do something that Sunday we've never done before um, at our church. It's going to be very special, very unique, and I think it will really bless those of you that are here. So don't miss December 26th, one service at 9 o'clock. And then the next Sunday will be the first Sunday, January 2nd, the first Sunday of the new year. And we are going to call that Outreach Sunday. And that is going to be where we're going to give you reports of all of the mission works that we support. Uh, here locally and around the world. We've got some video testimonies that our missionaries have sent in to us. We're going to hear from them what God is doing in places like uh, Mexico and the Philippines and Colombia. And then also, we are going to, that will be the last Sunday for the Olsons because we will be sending them and their launch team off on the first Sunday in January as we start the Orchard Church of Erie. Isn't that exciting? We're only five years old and We're going to have a baby. So the first Sunday in January, we're having a baby church, and we're going to bring all of them up on here, and and you're going to hear from them a little bit, and we're going to pray for them and send them out as they begin that new work. So you don't want to miss that. That's going to be a a milestone event for our church here at the Orchard, and we're looking forward uh, to that. Well, today we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation. You know, everybody has fears. How many of you guys say, I have certain fears, I know what they are? There's certain things I'm afraid of. You know, and some people, though, what's really strange is people even pay good money 
to be scared. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, that's why things like Six Flags exist, you know, and roller coasters and amusement parks. I couldn't believe how many haunted houses there were this year at Halloween in Denver. I mean, they were like gas stations. They were like on every corner. People are paying good money to go in and be scared to death. And then we know Hollywood has made millions and billions of dollars on horror films and and being scared. And then some people pay good money to do things like bungee jumping or skydiving. Any guys ever done that? Either one of those? I actually have done both of those. And let me tell you, neither one of them were they necessarily by my choice. When I was a youth pastor, we went uh, to this one place, kind of an amusement park, and they had this 125-foot bungee jump. And we were all going, wow. And it was when bungee jumping first came out and it was really popular. And, and so my students were like, you know, Doug, you should do that. You should do that. And we checked on how much it was, and it was like 50 bucks. And I'm like, oh, I would do it, but I'm not going to spend $50 to do it. Well, you don't tell that to a group of 100 teenagers. I'm not kidding you. Within like three minutes, they took like a dollar up from every kid. And they were like, here you go. And so I had no choice but to jump. And, and I remember I was standing up there, you know, just looking down 125 feet. And I, I said to the guy that was in this cage, I said, can you just push me? Because I can't jump. He's like, no, you got to do it. And my students were counting down like 10, 9, 8. They got all the way to 1. And I was like, and they started all over again. 10, 9. I think they took three of those. And then like on the third one, I finally decided to jump. And then... I, I had actually always wanted to skydive. It, I made the mistake of saying that in one of my messages when I was pastoring in Indiana. And one of the men in our church who was in his 70s comes up to me after church. He's like, do you really want to go skydiving? Is that something you really want to do? And I'm like, yeah, I really, really would, I think. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I've always wanted to do that too. I'll take you, I'll pay your way. I'll pay for both of us. Well, when a 70 five-year-old man is paying your way and he's doing it too. How do you chicken out? And so I did it and I actually enjoyed it. I, I probably would do that again. I looked up the top 10 fears of people, things that people are afraid of. Maybe some of these years. Here are the top 10 fears that people have. First one, you know what it is? Public speaking. I'm glad I don't have that one. Uh, fear of public speaking, social situations, um, heights, flying, spiders, snakes, thunderstorms, confined spaces, wide open spaces, and vomiting. That's definitely one of my fears. I will do anything to avoid that. I'd just rather be sick. You know, so I thought, well, what would be the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario would be getting on an airplane, flying high in the sky in wide open spaces, confined to a small little seat. When a thunderstorm hits, snakes and spiders to begin crawling all around the plane, the captain comes on and asks, um, could you stand up and say a word to the crowd and you vomit everywhere? <laughs> that would be like a worst case scenario fear. But you know, you, you have to admit there are some bizarre phobias out there. And I don't want to ever make fun of anybody's fears, but there are some pretty bizarre fears and phobias that are out there. Let me give you a couple of them. One of them is called electrophobia, and it's the fear of chickens. I guess those people would never go to KFC to eat. I, I don't know. Uh, homelophobia. This is the fear. I hope you do not have homelophobia today because homelophobia is the fear of sermons. So any of y'all that get up early and leave, we know that you have homelophobia. Either that or you just got to get to work. Um, another one, all of our students have this one, parents. You know your students have this fear. It's scolianophobia. It's the fear of going to school. How many students have that fear? Yeah, yeah they won't admit it. Um, here's one, jellyophobia, the fear of laughter or laughing. So you guys that are laughing right now, if somebody has that, you just scared them. They're sitting next to you. 
Um, here's one that some of you may have, especially during this time of year. Sociophobia. It's the fear of in-laws. Don't raise your hands. Some of you are getting ready to experience the fear of in-laws during the Christmas season. Um, here's one. I never heard of this one. Papaphobia. You know what that is? The fear of the Pope. Fear of the Pope. Listen, guys, I've seen the Pope. 99% of you guys could take him. Don't need to have that fear. You'll like this one. Microphobia. It's the fear of little things or little people. Boo! <laughs> and here's one more. One of my favorites. <laughs> I had to include that one. Here's one of my favorites. Phronemophobia. It's the fear of thinking. How many of you are quite sure your spouse might have that? You're just, you know, yeah, yeah. Ladies, you can raise your hand, but men, please do not raise your hand. I actually know people that suffer from this malady. But you know what? Not all fears are bad. Not all fears are bad. There are some things that we should fear and we should have a healthy fear of. Uh, one of those would be something like electricity. Um, I actually grew up in a home where my dad was a master electrician, but I know nothing about electricity. He never taught me anything, but he knew all about it. He wasn't afraid of it, but I am. If I'm going to do any kind of electrical work, as a matter of fact, my wife, if I'm going to do any electrical work, she's like, call somebody. You know, you need to have a healthy fear of, of electricity. And, and other things we should have a healthy fear of because they keep us safe and they help us make right decisions. In the famous book, Moby Dick, Captain Ahab, in that novel, said this, I don't want anyone on my ship that doesn't have a healthy fear of whales. A healthy fear to keep them safe. And not all fear is bad. And the best fear, and you may, maybe you don't know, realize this, you haven't heard this, but the best fear is a healthy fear of the Lord. A healthy fear of the Lord. What does that mean? It means a healthy respect for God, a healthy reverence for God. A healthy awe of God and for who he really is. And we're learning that as we go through these things in Revelation. They shouldn't scare us if we know the Lord, but they should give us a healthy fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7, uh, Solomon, the wisest man other than Jesus to ever live, said this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The beginning of wisdom and knowledge is to fear the Lord. And I, I think if we're honest, a lot of people today especially in American Christianity, have lost a healthy fear of the Lord. You know, Jesus is seen as a buddy and a friend, and he is our friend, but, but he's also God, and he's also the Lord, and we need to have a, a healthy fear of him. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Oswald Chambers, who wrote the uh, wonderful devotional book, my utmost for my highest. He said this, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Great statement. When you fear God in the right way, you fear nothing else. Well, as we continue our series today through Revelation, a return of the king, a journey through Revelation verse by verse, what we've seen so far in the timeline of events to come in Revelation chapter 4, the rapture of the church has taken place. Now we're moving into the tribulation period, that seven-year period on the earth. And what happens at the rapture is that God takes those who fear him. But those that are left on the earth during the tribulation period are those who do not fear him. But they will learn to fear him by the events that will be taking place. We've been talking about the seals uh, as we started into uh, Revelation chapter uh, 6. We saw this seven-sealed scroll in heaven 
that contains God's plan for the end of the world and his plan for redemption and his plan for judgment on the earth and the evil and sin and those that will not turn to him. And there's seven seals, and each one of these seals represents a judgment being open. And last week, we saw the first four seals open, and it was represented by the four horsemen. We saw the white horse, which was the false uh, peace, the, the horse of false peace. We saw that one open, which the Antichrist is going to ride on. Then we saw the red horse and the second seal of war that's going to break out throughout the earth. We saw the black seal, the third seal, the black seal of famine that is going to be going on worldwide during the tribulation. And then we finished last week with the fourth seal, the pale horse of death, where we learned that one and a half to two billion people, a quarter of the earth's population during the tribulation period, are going to die. Their lives are going to be lost. And that, those first four seals basically take us up to about the first half of the seven years of tribulation, or three and a half years on our timeline. Today, we're going to jump back into chapter 6, verse 9, where we left off last week, and we're going to see the fifth and the sixth seal of this scroll open, the fifth and the sixth. And then when we come back in January, we'll see the seventh seal, which opens the seven trumpets, which opens the seven bowls. And so all of this is contained within this scroll that we're reading about. And the fifth and sixth seal today, what we're going to see is that the fifth seal, when it is open, there's going to be a response in heaven. And the sixth seal, when it's open, there's going to be a response that takes place on the earth. That's why I've entitled this today, Heavenly and Earthly Responses. And I really encourage you, if you didn't make it last week, go online to orchardchurchonline.com. All of our messages are videotaped and they're on there so you can catch up. Because we really, last week, spent some time setting up the context of the tribulation period and the Antichrist. So I, I really encourage you to go back. We just don't have time to review all of that today and check that out. Let's go ahead and pray and let, let's jump into... Uh, these fifth and sixth seals today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for those who have taken time to be here today to hear your word and study your word. I pray, Lord, that we would apply it to our lives and that we gain a greater healthy fear for you. We gain a greater appreciation as believers that you have saved us from the wrath to come. You've saved us from the tribulation period. And Lord, I just pray today that if there's anyone here just like last week where six people came into our service and for the first time accepted you as Lord and Savior. I pray if there's anyone here today in this first service or the second service to come that does not know you, today would be the day of their salvation. That they would accept your love, your mercy, and your grace so they do not have to face your judgment and your wrath. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look. We've just got two points today. First of all, the response from heaven, the cry of heaven. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed." The fifth seal here marks the end, as I said, of the three and a half years or about the midpoint of the tribulation as, as most scholars look at it and try to put this in line. And what John saw and he heard was the cry of these saints, these believers in heaven who had been slain for their faith during the tribulation. And when he says here he saw the souls of those who had been slain, that word slain literally means slaughtered. They were slaughtered during the tribulation period because they accepted Christ and they were believers, they become believers. Uh, we sometimes talk about these people would be martyrs. The word martyrs comes from the Greek word martis, and it literally means witness. 
They were witness to the fact they had accepted Christ, put their faith and trust in Him, and they were killed for it during the tribulation period. Now, how do we know that these believers that John saw, these souls of the believers, how do we know they're from the tribulation period and these are just not believers throughout church history for the last 2,000 years? Well, as we look at this in detail, I think we can understand how we know these are tribulation martyrs and not martyrs before the rapture of the church. Notice what John saw in verse 9. He said, I saw under the altar the what? The bodies? No. The souls of those. The souls of those who'd given their life. They didn't have a body yet. They hadn't received their glorified body. Now, a question that is often asked, as a matter of fact, just this week I had someone in our church ask about this. What happens literally to a believer right now when they die? You know, what goes to heaven? What stays here? Does everything stay here? And then somewhere at the rapture, everything goes there. You know, how does that work? You know, how how do we understand that? When will believers receive their glorified bodies that the scripture talks about? Let me help you with that a little bit because it's it's an important question that it's very practical that people ask us a lot. We need to understand that when God made us, the Bible says in the book of Genesis, when God made Adam and Eve, that he made man and woman in the likeness and image of God. You remember that? Say yes. So if we're made like God, what is God like? Well, we know that our God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's three, but yet he's one. And so if we're made like God, God made us the same way. And we find in Scripture in many different places that God gave us a body, He gave us a soul, and He gave us a spirit. We are also three in one. And the Scripture tells us that when a believer right now today dies, really the Bible doesn't even say they die, it says they fall asleep. And what falls asleep is their body, but immediately their spirit and their soul go where? If they're a believer. They go to heaven to be with the Lord. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He said to be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. And isn't that encouraging this morning? If you draw your last breath on this earth right now, if something happens to you or one of your loved ones and they know Christ, the moment the body goes to sleep, the soul and spirit are with the Lord. They're not hanging in limbo somewhere. They don't have to wait around in the ground till something else happens. They are present and with the Lord, their spirit and their soul. So, okay, then when do they get their body? Well, it's not going to be the old body. And I thank God for that because I'm definitely trading this five foot four one in for a bigger one. I just know my glorified body is going to be better than that. And so we're going to get a glorified body, but when does that happen? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which gives us great details about the rapture of the church, that is when we receive our glorified bodies. The Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who remain will be caught up with them. If, If we're alive when the rapture takes place, and I personally believe there's a really good chance we will be, you know, we won't die. We'll just, boom, we'll go right to heaven to be with the Lord, and we'll get new bodies on the way up. We're going to look good when we get up there. We're going to all be changed, the Bible says, in in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15. So today, that's what happens to believers this side of the rapture. But there's going to be people that, that accept Christ during the tribulation period, not many, but some, and they're going to die, and their soul, just like us, is going to go to heaven, their soul and their spirit, but the resurrection of their bodies evidently we're not it's not exactly clear in scripture but it seems as though their bodies will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period does that make sense say yes that's why john just sees the souls of them and that's why we also know that these people died during the tribulation because if they were people that died before they would already have their bodies 
because they would have received them at the rapture of the church. And so that's, that's what's going on here. And you'll notice in verse 11, it says that these, even though he saw souls, that they had white robes. A white robe was given to each of them. A white robe. Um, in Revelation chapter 7, you look at it right there with me, verse 13 really gives us the clear detail of who these souls are in heaven that John saw. It says in uh, Revelation 7, 13, we'll look at this in detail when we get there in a few weeks. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And here's the answer. And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out and, excuse me, come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that clearly uh, clears it up right there who these souls are that John sees under the altar. These crying souls are clearly martyrs from the tribulation period whose souls are in heaven and they're waiting for their glorified bodies. Notice where he saw these souls in verse 9. It says he saw them under the altar. Now, that's significant, or John wouldn't have said it that way, and it's probably a picture of the Old Testament sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when the priests would give the sacrifice, they would take the life of the animal, the blood of the animal, and it would be poured out in the brazen altar, under the altar there. And that's where you see these souls who have given their blood, spilled their blood for their faith in Christ during the tribulation, and they're going to give their blood and sacrifice to the Lord for their faith. They're going to be willing to die for their faith, just like those Old Testament sacrifices, you know, their lives and their blood was given. Notice in verse 10, their cry. What are they crying out, this cry? What is this response in heaven? And they say, they cry with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, and holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood, our lives, on those who dwell on the earth? It's like, you know, they're asking, Lord, when are you going to avenge those people, you know, on the earth that have taken our lives and why we're here and that, you know, they killed us during the tribulation period? Notice their question is not, will you avenge our blood, but when will you? God is in control, and he will hold them accountable, as he will hold all evil accountable. And in verse 11, they get their answer, and basically what the Lord says is, be patient. There are others that are going to give their lives during the tribulation period. Remember, we're just still in the first three and a half years. There's going to be more who accept Christ and give their lives of martyrs in the second three and a half years. And the Lord knows exactly how many. He says here, uh, a white robe was given to them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer or wait for their glorified bodies a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. You see, the Lord knew exactly down to the very number every life that would come to Christ during the tribulation period and would give their life for Christ during the tribulation period. And as we're going to see as we continue through Revelation, it doesn't get easier for the believers on earth. It gets more difficult. But God knows the exact number. And you know, that ought to encourage us that He is always in complete control. Amen? Nothing we're reading about in Revelation is out of God's control. He's in control of all of it. And God makes it clear to these souls in heaven who gave their lives during the tribulation that their sacrifice was not an accident, but an appointment. It was an appointment, just like all of our lives. There are no accidents with God. There are appointments. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. That's what the scripture says. So even in the death of his people, God is in control. Our days are numbered by the Lord. So there's nothing to fear when we know him. He's in control of the situation. And you know, if you think about these believers and try to think of this in a positive sense, you say, well, yeah, but they, they were killed. They had to give their lives. But you know what? The moment their lives were taken, 
Guess where they were? In heaven, in the presence of the Lord. Everything was perfect. And the moment we step foot into eternity with the Lord, we're going to forget about everything that happened on earth. We're going to go, man, why, did I, why wasn't I here sooner? Now, we don't want to help God along. I'm not encouraging that. But, but, but think of the mercy that God is even showing to them because they're going to escape all of the horrible things we're going to continue to read about. And they're going to be with the Lord and they're going to be out of the tribulation period. Now, again, I want to point out these white robes in verse 11. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Why do they need white robes if they're souls and they don't even have a body? I mean, what are you going to put these white robes on? Well, this is not literally speaking, but figuratively. This is some of the symbolic language that John is using throughout the book of Revelation. And white and white robes throughout the scriptures represents someone who's received God's forgiveness for their sins. They're now clean. They're white. They're pure. It symbolizes righteousness, which means to be right with God. It symbolizes God's grace. It symbolizes that they've made it to heaven safely, and they are safely in heaven forever. And every one of us that are believers one day the Bible says we will wear white robes in heaven showing that we have no sin it's all been taken care of by Jesus Christ so even when it appears that evil is winning during the tribulation period God has the last word he always has the last word that's why I don't want you guys to ever get discouraged as we go through the book of Revelation because if you know the Lord you don't have to be afraid of any of this you don't have to be scared of any of this and I've read the end of the book and we win God is in control Now, let me give you two practical thoughts before we leave uh, this first little section here. First would be to unbelievers. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Sometimes I talk to people and they hear about the tribulation, the rapture, and they say, well, I'm just going to wait and see if that happens. And then if it happens, then I will uh, see the church removed. And then I'll go ahead and I'll just, I'll accept Christ and I'll get saved during the tribulation period after, you know, my loved ones and friends are gone and they've been telling me about this. I'll see then it's for real. And then I'll accept Christ during the tribulation. Don't bet on it. That's a scary thing to gamble with. It's a very scary thing to gamble with. What we do know is this. From what we see in Scripture, anyone who comes to Christ and accepts Christ, and there will be some, but it will be very few in relation to how many people will be left on the earth. Very few. And those that do, everywhere we read in Revelation, it costs them their life. Many of them by being beheaded because of what the Antichrist and the beast does, as we're going to see as we move through Revelation. I mean, why would you want to wait to accept Christ when it's going to cost you your life? And yet that's what we see. Also, we will see that most of the people, even people that maybe had good intentions, that, well, I'll accept Christ during the tribulation period, they forget a very important passage in the Scripture. And that comes from 2 Thessalonians 2.9. And here's what it says. The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the working of who? Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, Uh, unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, who? God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. The scripture tells us that most of the people will buy into the deception and the lies of the Antichrist. And even people with good intentions may want to make the right decision, but will not make the right decision. They'll be deceived by the lie that even God will send. Are there some that will accept Christ? Yes, but it's very few. It is not something you want to gamble with. Amen, church? 
You don't want to take a chance on this. You don't want to gamble on this. You, you don't know what's going to be going on. You don't know how you're going to be thinking and how you're going to be feeling reading the things that we're going to see here in just a moment and, and the judgments that are taking place. And, and here's the real issue. If someone is not willing to commit to Christ and live for Him today, then what makes us think or what makes them think that they'd be willing to commit to Christ during the tribulation and die for Him tomorrow? It really doesn't make sense. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, say it, church, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Make that decision today. You do not want to gamble with this. You do not want to mess with this. This is serious stuff. And to believers, to the Christians, let me say this uh, to make this practical. I know many of you... Uh, have tried to witness to your friends and your coworkers and your family members and you try to invite them to church you try to share your faith with them and you should do that and praise the lord for that but do you ever find yourself discouraged when people don't want to listen i do you ever find yourself discouraged when people you care about and you love don't want to accept christ and sometimes we feel rejected let me encourage you with this they are never rejecting you they're rejecting god They're rejecting the scriptures. They're not rejecting you. And you need to remember that. And you also need to remember that when you share your faith in Christ and you share this book, never, ever, ever, ever underestimate the power of the word of God. Listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing which I have sent it. You know, you never know. You might be witnessing to someone that you care about who will give their life to Christ during the tribulation period because they remembered your witness and they remembered your faith. It will be difficult for them, but there will be some that are saved. And so even if they don't accept Christ this side of the rapture and the tribulation, they might accept Christ during the tribulation. So we should never, ever, ever stop sharing our faith. Amen? Never stop sharing and never underestimate the power of the Word of God. Here's another idea that I've heard people actually have done, and I might encourage you, especially if you have family members and close friends that might be a part of, you know, going through your things. If, if you, you know, left this earth, if you passed away, if you died, or, or if you were raptured, you know, and, and you were gone, and then all of a sudden your family members, friends, maybe neighbors have to come in your house and go through your things and, and try to figure out what to do with them. Um, I hope you have a will for your family. If you don't, I'd encourage you to get them. They're very reasonable nowadays. You can get them for about 25, 30 bucks. You can have them made. I encourage you to do that. But beyond just leaving a physical will, have you ever thought about leaving a spiritual will? You know, there are people now that are beginning to leave spiritual wills. And basically what happens is they leave a videotape of their, of their testimony, of their faith in Christ. They leave something like, you know, hey, if I just disappear one day off the face of this earth with a lot of other people, that's called the rapture, and give them the scriptures and explain that and explain how they can come to Christ. You can do it with a letter, you can do it with a video, you can do it with a CD. Put it on your Facebook for somebody to find later. I mean, there's lots of ways to do that today, and you never know who might find that and come to Christ during the tribulation period because your testimony continues on. As most of you know, I grew up in Oklahoma. And uh, Oklahoma's kind of tornado alley, and they used to always talk about tornado preparedness, you know. And so in our house, we had that radio that had the batteries in it, and we always had candles. And we had, had kind of our ton- tornado preparedness kit. You know, as Barry told you a couple weeks ago, my problem was I was usually outside looking for the tornado and not using those things like you should. But they wanted you to be prepared. You know, we need to think about maybe having a rapture preparedness kit. Think about that. 
And I know some of y'all will go, man, this guy's kooky. This is crazy. You know, I mean, it may not happen in our lifetime, but it might. There's going to be a generation sooner or later that it's going to happen. And as we study these things, I think that it's clear we're getting closer and closer. We know this. We're closer to the Lord's return than we've ever been before. Think about that, especially if you have family, loved ones, and friends that might find your things. That Maybe that father or mother you've been witnessing to. And you know if the rapture took place, they'd be left behind. And you'd want them to hear your testimony. Something to consider and think about. So we move from the cry of heaven, the heavenly response, to the cry of earth, the earthly response, to the sixth, sixth seal being opened uh, this morning. Look at verse 12 through 17 with me. John said, I looked when he had opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, and as fig trees drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and, so, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? As Jesus the Lamb opens up this sixth seal on the scroll, an incredible cosmic disturbance begins to take place on the earth. Uh, there's a great earthquake. The moon turns to what looks like blood. It's uh, blood red. The sun turns black. There's meteors. There's asteroids falling to the earth begin to impact the earth. The sky, the sky is rolled back like a, a scroll. And you can only imagine what fear will be on the earth when these events begin to take place as this sixth of the seven seals is open. And this, I believe, marks the beginning of what the Scripture calls the day of the Lord or the great tribulation or the second three and a half years. We're now moving into the second three and a half years of the tribulation period of the seven. And the phobias and fears we discussed earlier are nothing compared to the fear that will overtake the people on the earth at this moment as this sixth of seven seals is open. You know, the writer of Hebrews said it this way, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In verse 12, we see a great earthquake takes place on the earth. This is first, the first of three earthquakes that we're going to read and study about in Revelation as we move forward. We know because of what Jesus said and other writers throughout the scriptures that earthquakes are one of the major signs that we're getting closer to the return of the King, Jesus Christ. Because they're found throughout prophecy that there's going to be these great earthquakes during the tribulation. And, and the more earthquakes we see and the bigger earthquakes we see are indicators to let us know Jesus is close to coming back. I know many of you have read Hal Lindsey's books. Many of you have read his series, Left Behind. How many of you have read some of the Left Behind series? Very, very popular. He has written 17 books on prophecy. And in one of his latest books, he said this, Earthquakes continue to increase in frequency and intensity, just as the Bible predicts for the last days before the return of Christ. History shows that the number of killer quakes remained fairly constant until the 1950s. This is what seismologists tell us. Averaging between two to four per, deco per decade, major earthquakes. But in the 1950s, there were nine. 
In the 1960s, there were 13. In the 1970s, there were 51. And in the 1980s, there were 86. The number continues to grow. In the last decade, almost 1 million people worldwide have lost their lives to major earthquakes. These earthquakes are leading up to the big one. You know, California talks about the big one. Well, there's going to be a big one. But it's not just going to affect California. It's not going to affect just the United States. This is the big one that's going to affect the entire earth as this sixth seal in Revelation is opened. And this great earthquake is so massive and so global, it's going to trigger other cosmic events and events on the earth. In verse 14, we just read, we see that under the stress created by this global earthquake, great segments of the earth's plates will begin to slip and shift, realigning whole continents. I mean, this earthquake is so massive, it's going to move mountains. It's going to move islands. That's a big earthquake. In verse 12, we see that other events begin to happen. The sun is black and the moon turns blood red. These are probably symbolic how John is describing them as he sees this second three and a half of the years of tribulation take place. He's, he's describing these symbols and what he's seeing. Now, some scholars and some believe that he might be describing the fallout after some kind of nuclear warfare or nuclear attack, and which would turn, you know, the, the sun black and the moon would look blood red. And that is very possible. That's certainly possible. But I think maybe... A more likely scenario, we know that when earthquakes, even now, take place on this earth, you know what they often trigger? Volcanoes. Volcanoes that erupt are triggered by earthquakes. And these volcanoes will shoot ash and debris into the air. Remember the, some of you remember back in the 80s, Mount St. Helens, when that blew? And they showed people driving around in the middle of the day and they had their headlights on because the sun turned black from all the ash and the debris. And at night, the moon would look red because of the fire and because of the debris and the ash that was shooting in the sky. That's probably what John is describing here during this sixth seal. Joel, the prophet Joel, before Jesus came the first time, you know what most of the prophets in the Old Testament were talking about? Before Jesus even came the first time, they were talking about the second coming. They were talking about the day of the Lord. They were talking about the tribulation. And Joel, several thousand years ago, Joel chapter 2 verse 30 said this, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's what we're reading and studying right here in Revelation chapter 6. And we know that darkness on the earth in the scriptures usually symbolizes judgment. Darkness on the earth symbolizes judgment. Probably one of the best examples we have of this is you remember when Jesus was crucified on the cross of Calvary? And you remember what happened when he was taking upon the sin of the world and the judgment of his father for sin was taken upon Jesus Christ on the cross? And the Bible tells us from 12 o'clock noon to 3 o'clock, right in the middle of the day, which should have been the brightest part of the day, what happened? The sun turned dark. And the sky fell dark. Why? Because the judgment for sin was being taken upon Jesus Christ himself for you and I. And when judgment comes in Revelation, it will happen again. That the skies will turn black. Nothing that we have experienced on this earth in the last decade, hundred years, or even thousands of years, nothing we've experienced on earth compares to this time on earth and what we're reading. Things like the great earthquake we've recently seen in, in Haiti and, and China several years ago, the tsunami in Asia, 9-11 and all the panic and chaos that happened in New York, all of those, y'all, are microcosms 
of what is going to be taking place worldwide as God's judgment comes to the earth for those who have rejected him and do, want, do not want to have anything to do with him. Jerry Bridges said it this way, Jesus did not die simply to give us peace and purpose in life. He died to save us from the wrath of God. You know, we always talk about the peace and the grace and the mercy and the love, and Jesus certainly offers those things, and thank God for that, amen? But if we reject that, then we have no choice but to experience the wrath of God. And Jesus didn't just save us to give us all the goodies. He saved us from the bad stuff, amen? And as believers today, if nothing else, this study of the book of Revelation should just grow our appreciation and love for our Savior that came here to give us an escape from these things that we're reading and studying about. And how can you turn your back on that? Except that Jesus took your judgment for you. You see, you have one of two choices, according to the scriptures. These are not my rules. This isn't my opinion. This isn't my idea. This is what the Bible teaches. And I love you and care enough about you and every person that lives to tell you this. Somebody has to pay for sins. Somebody has to be judged for sins. Because God is a holy and just God. And we will either accept that Jesus paid the sacrifice and took our judgment for us and put our faith and trust in Him so we do not face that judgment, or we reject Jesus Christ and what He did for us, and one day we face that judgment. I would rather accept Christ, amen? I would rather put my faith in Him. We notice in verse 13, something else happens in the skies and the universe. Stars are falling. Verse 13 says they're falling like a fig tree, in the, in, figs falling off a fig tree like when the wind would blow and they begin to drop to the ground but these are not figs that are falling to the ground they're stars, they're asteroids they're meteors, there's meteor showers taking place, I remember growing up as a kid in Oklahoma we had uh, one fruit tree in our backyard, it was a peach tree and uh, we would go out and we'd pick peaches and that's probably why I don't look peaches that much today because we had peach everything you know if you could make it out of peaches we made it my mom made it and she would go out and she'd tell me, go pick some peaches. And I'd be like, well, mom, how do I know if they're ripe? How do I know to pick the right ones? And she said, well, some of them will already have fallen off the tree and they're laying on the ground. If they're not, you know, eaten by birds or worms, pick them up, bring them in. And others, if you just kind of touch them and they fall off in your hand, you'll know they're ripe. You'll, you'll know they're ready. And, and that's what's going to happen. When this judgment takes place, the universe is ripe and ready and stars begin to fall out of the sky, asteroids and meteors. It's not peaches falling to the earth. It's rocks. Um, I read this this week that uh, one scientist said this, any asteroid falling from the sky would have a tremendous amount of energy. Here's a typical example. In 2028, astronomers tell us that the asteroid, and they've named them, they've given them numbers, 1997X5 or F11 will come extremely close to the Earth but will miss the planet. They go on to say if something were to change and it did hit the Earth, what you would have is a, a mile-wide asteroid striking the planet's surface at about 30,000 miles per hour. An asteroid that big traveling at that speed has the energy roughly equal to a 1 million megaton bomb. It is very likely that an asteroid like this would wipe out most of the life on the planet as we know it. And yet we read about that very type of thing happening here during the sixth seal. In verse 14, we notice that John says that he saw the sky rolled back like a scroll. Again, he's probably using uh, symbolic language here to describe what he was seeing. But it's interesting, I read just this week, um, according to those involved in quantum physics and the Hubble telescope, they show us that the universe is expanding and it's curved or scroll-like in the shape. 
And that's what John is describing here. You might ask the question, can God really roll up the sky like a scroll? He can if he wants to. He made it. He put it there. We don't know exactly what all that's going to look like, but that's how John described it for us. And then we see the cry of the people on earth. We've seen the cry in heaven of the souls under the altar. And now we see in verse 15 and 16 the cry of the people on earth that are experiencing these events. This great earthquake, the sun turning black, the moon turning like blood, um, meteors and asteroids falling to this earth. Notice what their cry is and their response. In verse 15, we see that it's going to affect everyone. The kings of the earth, great men, rich men, commanders, mighty men, free men, slaves. Everyone on the earth is going to be affected and experience this fear. This panic, this chaos, this distress beyond what we can really imagine. It doesn't matter who they are. Nobody is exempt from this judgment and and these events that are taking place. And in verse 16, we see their response. And what is their response? And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Their response is to run and hide and wish for death. That's what they're wishing for. That's how horrible these events are. Dr. Vance Havner once said this, The day would come when the most expensive piece of real estate on this earth would be a hole in the ground. And he was right as we read these events. In verse 16, it's not now that the people don't know where these events are coming from or the source of the events. It's not that they, they wonder, like, what's happening to the sun and what's happening to the moon and what's going on? They know, in verse 16, it says they cry out, hide us from the wrath of who? The Lamb. They now know the source of their trouble. They know where the judgment is coming from. But here is what is sad. Here's what we read here, and here's what is so sad during the tribulation period. Why? You don't want to be a part of this. People would rather run from God in fear then run to God in faith. That's what's happening here. You know, they would rather call out to nature for the rocks and the mountains that are being moved to fall on them and take their lives rather than call out in mercy to God. And, you know, it's understandable to me that people during the tribulation would rather die than face the wrath of God. I think we can understand that, say yes. That they would rather die than face the wrath of God. I do understand that. But here's what I don't understand about the human race. Why isn't anyone crying out to God for mercy and forgiveness? Why are they running from God instead of to God? And it doesn't make any more sense today that people would run from God rather than to God than it will during the tribulation period. And and, and you see people, you talk to people, and you tell them what God has done for them, how much He loves them, that He sent His Son to die for them, and that Christmas isn't just about a cute little cuddly baby in a manger that baby came to grow up to be a man to go to a cross and to die for their sins so that they might be saved from the wrath of god so they might have everlasting life so they might have their sins forgiven that they might have purpose in life and meaning in life and direction in life and to know what they were created for and yet people push away and they run from that instead of to god that's hard to understand i want you to hear this is one of my favorite passages in scripture about the heart of god Maybe you've never heard this. Maybe you're here today and you go, oh yeah, I've heard about all this wrath of God. But hear another side of God. Listen to God's real heart. He doesn't want anybody to experience his wrath. Here's what his heart is. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, God says, as I live, says the Lord God. Listen to this. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? Man, if people would only understand that. We serve a God that loves us and wants us to have everlasting life. He doesn't want anybody to die. He doesn't want anybody to face this judgment. And he's made a way of escape. And then we see in verse 17, there's a rhetorical question that is asked. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And you know what the answer is? Nobody. No one is going to be able to stand against the wrath of God. No one who rejects Jesus Christ will be able to stand. But as we bring this to a close this morning, as terrible as all this sounds, it's not all bad news. I'd like to close with some good news. Here's the first good news. And you're going to hear this a lot as we go through this study. And I want you to keep hearing it over and over again. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not face any of this because we will not be here. And we need to continue to praise the Lord. The more we understand these events, the more comfort it should bring us, the more encouragement and hope and appreciation for a God who has made it possible to escape His judgment. Amen? We need to remember that as we read this. I told you in the beginning of Revelation, a lot of people, a lot of churches, a lot of pastors don't want to study the book of Revelation because they're afraid it's going to scare everybody to death. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be scared by any of these things. We won't be here. And I'm going to keep telling you that over and over and over. If you come out afterward and go, oh, that was really good, Pastor Doug, but that really freaks me out. You know what I'm going to say? We won't be here. Don't let anybody tell you that we will. If you know Christ, that brings us great encouragement. Let me give you some more good news encouragement. As we pick this up in January, we're going to see as we move into chapter 7 and 8, God in His mercy and His love and His grace is still reaching out to save those during the tribulation period who will turn to Him. There won't be many, but there will be some. But it's not because God isn't trying. It's not because God isn't reaching. It's not because God isn't giving them an opportunity. I mean, that ought to just remind us that God wants to do everything at every time to save people. And we're going to see that as we move into chapter 7. We know there's going to be at least 144,000 Jews that come to Christ. And you know what those 144,000 Jews are going to do? They're going to be like little Apostle Pauls all over the world trying to turn people to Christ. One last time, giving them that opportunity. We're going to find two witnesses that show up on the scene. Uh, these, these characters are interesting, man. They got fire shooting out of their mouth, and the world tries to kill them. They do kill them. They're dead for three days. Then they're resurrected. It's on CNN. It's, it's crazy. And you know why God sends these two witnesses? To give people another chance, one more chance. You can be delivered if you turn to Christ. We're going to see many Gentiles that will come to Christ. There will be some people saved. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 uh, through 7, we'll, we'll get there, but let me just tell you what happens. It, this is so important. You know, sometimes you go to a Broncos game or, 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 or go to a Rockies game, and somebody wants to advertise something, so they'll get a plane, and they'll stick a big banner on the back of the plane, and they'll be flying around the stadium, or, you know, big sporting events. There'll be a big blimp, and there'll be an advertisement on it, you know, uh, on the blimp. You know, God's going to do that very thing during the tribulation period, but he's not going to use a blimp, and he's not going to use a plane. He's going to send an angel, and that angel's going to be flying through the sky, and he's going to be preaching the gospel to everybody on the earth, giving them one more chance, one more chance to accept Christ. There's really no excuse, and, but that should encourage us. That God is not anxious to bring his wrath. God is anxious to bring salvation. Now and even during the tribulation. And then people ask, 
Why hasn't the Lord come back yet? I mean, we keep hearing about this. Why hasn't he come back? What's he waiting for? I'm ready. You know what he's waiting for? He's waiting for people to accept him. He's waiting for people to accept him. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And this is in the context of him returning in 2 Peter. As some count slackness, but as long-suffering, patient toward us, not willing that any should perish. Can we say that, church? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It really bothers me when people that don't know Christ talk to me and they say, oh, you know, why would I turn to that God? He's just a God of wrath. He's just a God of judgment. And they don't ever understand and remember that he's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. But he gives us a choice. And he's long-suffering and he's patient. Man, I am so glad God was patient toward me. Aren't you glad God was patient toward you? And he will continue to be a patient God. Now, as we close, let me give you two options today. If you're here and you've never accepted Christ today, here's the good news. Our goal isn't to scare you. Our goal is to encourage you to accept Christ. But let you know the truth of the scripture that judgment is waiting for those who reject him. That's what the scriptures teach. I would not do you any favors if I told you otherwise. And here you have two options. One is accept Christ today. Accept today, not his judgment, accept the judgment that his son took upon himself on the cross. Accept his love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness. Accept hope. This could be the greatest day of your, not just life, of your eternity. This could be a day that some of you would look back and say, thank God for December 12, 2010, because I escaped the judgment of God and I received the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. You know, it's Christmas time. I know this isn't a real Christmassy message. It will be next week. But yet, maybe it is. It's a perfect time to understand. You know what Christmas is all about? Giving. And you know why it's about giving? Because 2,000 years ago, God gave it all to save us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What a great Christmas to accept the gift of salvation today. Now, here's your other option. You can say no, and you can take your chances during the tribulation period. If the rapture takes place, the tribulation will begin. This, this book has never been wrong once, and that's what it says is going to happen. And you can take your chances, but you know what? That's a scary thing to gamble with. And you know what? We talk about the rapture and the tribulation, but if something happens to your life before that happens, if you die, that's even worse. You know why? Because death ends every opportunity to be saved. When you die, it's game over. At least if you're around for the tribulation, you'll have one more chance. But if you die, the Bible says there is no more chance. It's game over. I mentioned Mount St. Helens earlier in my message. In uh, 1980, it erupted in Washington State. And seismologists and people that study volcanoes and all that saw that it was coming. It's, every sign was, this thing's going to blow. This thing's going to erupt. And, and they, were, they were trying to evacuate everyone within about a 10-mile radius of this, this uh, volcano that was going to erupt in Washington. And they put signs up, and they had police going door to door. It was all on the news. I mean, there was barricades. They were doing everything to get everybody out because they knew this thing was going to blow, and it was going to be devastating. 
And there was one guy, some of you may remember this, his name was Harry Truman. No relation to the president, but had the same name. His name was Harry Truman, and he had lived there for some 50 years. He was in his 80s. He was the caretaker at Spirit Lake. And they tried and begged him to leave, and they said, this thing's going to blow, this thing's going to blow. And he was quoted, he was on television, he said, nobody knows more about this mountain than me, and it won't get Harry. But on May the 18th, 1980, at 8.31 in the morning, Mount St. Helens erupted. And Harry Truman's body was never found. And his life was taken. He disregarded all of the warnings. Said, it'll never happen to me. And you know what is sad? Many people today refuse to heed God's warning of judgment to come, even though the signs are everywhere. Don't make that mistake today. Don't make that mistake today. Accept Christ. Would you bow your heads? Would your heads bow?